0: Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive functions. This show is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. These conversations will introduce mental tools that will empower you to shift your mindset for a successful life. And now, here is your host, Sucheta Kamath.
1: Welcome back to Full Prefrontal, where we are exposing the mysteries of executive functions. I am here with our host, Suteta Kamath. Good morning, my friend. Uh, So autopilot, the Atlanta Braves, a Category 5 storm, mindlessness. Explain all these random things to me.
2: Sure. Good morning to you, Todd. And I'm so excited to talk about these random things. Haven't we all done things like rushing through activities without really paying attention to them, breaking or spilling things because our mind is on something else? Mindlessness means operating on an autopilot while doing, being lost in fantasies of the past and the future, or simply going through the humdrum of this moment just so that you can get to the other moments, which are more enticing or exciting. We rush and make mistakes or sometimes run into social faux pas even. Take this example, a Category four, 5 storm is not an everyday event. You agree? And recently, we here in Atlanta were hit by Hurricane Irma, and incidents made an impression on me. As Atlanta Braves played the Miami Marlins at SunTrust Park on September 7, 2017, the fans were bemused as a 1984 hit song, Rock You Like a Hurricane, by Scorpions, blasted over the loudspeakers. Wasn't that the Braves had never played that song before? but more like the timing of it was not quite right. The song choice was a bit odd considering that Hurricane Irma was plowing through the Caribbean as the game was going on and the Southern Florida was midst of widespread evacuation. Potentially Atlanta was the next on that list. Braves were heavily criticized for this tone deaf move as many news reporters called it. It was later discovered that Scorpion's song was on the team's regular playlist and no one thought of pulling it off the playlist. The song was on autopilot, so was Braves' management team. The officials declared that Braves will not use the song again during the series, which makes no sense to me. The point I'm trying to make is we need skills to tune into the world around us and strong working memory along with the desire to persist when we tackle life's nebulous problems. We need patience to sort, organize, and reflect when dealing with the novel or the unknown. Some are natural and intuitive, but most struggle with it. Executive function is the central processing unit where these complex functions originate and expand. And working memory system aids us to do what we need to do to attend to information while brainstorming and problem-solving life's mysteries, or simply mysteries of self. So today, I bring you an expert guest, From my neck of the woods and from my city, it is Professor Randy Engel. Professor Randy Engel, who is the primary investigator at the Attention and Memory Lab at the Georgia Tech School of Psychology, whose research interests center around the working memory capacity. He founded the GSU and GT Center for Advanced Brain Imaging. It's known as CABI, C-A-B-I, on the Georgia Tech campus and currently serves as the director of it. Professor Randall is an adjunct professor and professional fellow in the Department of Psychology at the University of Edinburgh. For the past 30 years, he has explored the nature of working memory and the association of working memory capacity and cognitive control to fluid intelligence. Dr. Engel serves as an editor of Current Directions in Psychological Science and has been on the editorial board of numerous other journals over his career. His work is highly influential across a wide array of areas, including social psychology, emotions, psychopathology, developmental psychology, psychological testing, and has contributed to modern theory of cognitive and emotional control. I am very excited to introduce you to Dr. Professor Engel.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Dr. Engel. You know, thinking about your story of the Atlanta Braves playing that Scorpion song, I mean, it just never occurred to me that when you encounter a situation like that where someone just seems tum deaf, I just, I never connected the dots that that was a, you know, an executive function issue. So that's going to be fascinating to think about that and better understand that. All right. Well, this is going to be a great episode. I'm looking forward to it. Let's get to it. Here is a conversation with Professor Randall Engel.
2: Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ingall. We are so delighted to have you. Here's a common experience everyone can relate to. Someone leaves me a voicemail with their name and phone number. And this is, of course, before we invented uh, visual messages. I listen to the voicemail. I keep it in mind long enough, the number that they have left for me. I dial it, and then immediately I forget about it. If you ask me to repeat that number, what it was, I probably can't do it. Is that a good example of working memory? How would you define it?
3: How would I define working memory? That's part of working memory. Working memory, and when we started doing this, I've been doing this work for almost 40 years now, and when I first started doing this in the late 70s, early 80s, that's almost exactly how I would have defined it. But I now know that, in fact, working memory is better thought of as a system, and it's a system of temporary memories, which you just referred to, but it also includes the interaction with attention, and attention is really the key to this in many, many ways. And there are two aspects to that that I will I'll talk about later. You know, we use working memory much of the time when we're doing uh, important cognition. It's not involved in everything we do, and yet it's exceedingly important for most of the complex cognition that we do. And it's this temporary memory along with attention, and it's particularly important in the face of interference from previously thought of information or ongoing information. So you probably didn't pay attention to that number very well when you first heard it. It was in temporary memory long enough for you to dial it, but you didn't really think about it long enough to store it in what we might think of as long-term memory. And, you know, we do this with names and faces. When we're meeting people for the first time at a party or getting ready to start a new semester uh, next Tuesday, and I will ask every student in the class to tell me their name, And in a situation like that, we're typically thinking about many, many things. I'm thinking about, gee, where's the beer and the dip if I'm at a party? Gee, she's cute. You know, where's the bathroom? All of these thoughts that can occur in a situation like that. On the other hand, you know, when I'm introducing myself to my students and them to me, I'm really thinking about that. It's very important that I concentrate on paying attention to their name, their face. And in doing that, it doesn't take me very long, really one time through, and I can learn the name of. You know, 15 or 20 people, and with two times through, I can probably learn a class of 30 or 40. But it's by working, by paying attention to that, and by saving that information, copying that information into what we think of as long-term memory, making it more easily retrievable in the face of interference. And that interference can be even things that are capturing my attention. So if while you and I are talking, plane flies overhead, and I shift my attention to that, it's quite likely that I'm going to forget sort of the thread of my conversation with you at that time. So this working memory system is a bit more complex than just the temporary memory. That's a part of it. But attention turns out to be, I think, in fact, the most important part of it.
2: I'm going to talk a little bit about attention. So is it fair then to say that working memory is activated as soon as we begin to attend or to process whatever enters our consciousness?
3: In fact, many people would equate the contents of working memory, this temporary memory information, as the equivalent of consciousness. It's hard to know that because we don't really have objective ways of measuring consciousness. That's one of the things that has eluded modern cognitive science, I think, unfortunately. But it is, yes, and I do, I tend to think of it as, that's a good but rough way of thinking about the contents of working memory as the contents of consciousness. When something is lost, what that means is the activation of that information drops below some threshold. So you can think about this as as in the nervous system where you've got thresholds for activation. That information is of active above some threshold, I'm conscious of it. I'm aware of it. Even if I've stopped attending it's to that information, it's going to be in consciousness for a brief period of time. Okay. I just got a call from let me turn this off. It's my wife. She'll call it. No problem. That call came in and I had to stop. What was I talking about? And so I had to search for what the thread of what I was talking about there. I think I've retrieved it, but in a busy day, I might not. That ability to reaccess information that was previously thought of is really important. And that's why the idea of interference is so important, because it's interference that makes it necessary to keep that information active and easily retrievable.
2: So in my work, the way I see, and I deal with people who have developmental disorders that affects yep. their yep. attention, and then I have also acquired brain injuries where their attention is affected, but yep. I see a, a unifying complaint or a challenge that I need to help them with. It is not just a paying attention, but it's knowing what to pay attention to oh, absolutely. and continuously yep. monitoring that you're paying attention to what matters. And if you don't monitor that, then you are really paying attention to something irrelevant or unimportant simply because just because it entered your consciousness does not mean you will actually, uh, what you're paying attention to is critical to your need, correct?
3: That's correct. And, and it's actually more than that. It's that many more things enter consciousness because you don't block them out. Along with this ability to, to attend to incoming information, a critical part of that is what I call disengagement. And that is that information is coming in and I have to block it out. So speaking from my office here at home, there's a street that goes by, but I need to not pay attention to the car that goes by outside or the high school kids coming home from school, walking and talking. I need to block that out. And I think people who have problems of the type that you're talking about often have difficulty blocking out what we can call task unrelated thoughts. So as I'm talking to you, talking to you is my task. That's what I want to do. And and I want to pay attention to you. You want to pay attention to me. But thoughts that are outside of that really fit into an area that we call mind wandering. And mind wandering is a very hot area right now. It's very much related to this. And uh, there are big differences in ability, and we'll talk about abilities here in a moment, in the ability to prevent mind wandering. You know, as we're having this conversation, I need to block that information. It's coming in from all of the myriad sources in my environment and the people that you're talking about, whether it's a result of a brain injury or developmental issues as well. My wife is a school psychologist and she works with people like children like this all the time who just have difficulty preventing these all this extraneous information from getting into the consciousness, if you will. And those things can then lead the person down a path away from the task that they're doing. And this attention, a capability, a big part of it is blocking that extraneous information, or blocking the pursuit of that information, if you will.
2: Yeah. So let's go back to that very important point that you were you have just started talking about. So the brain attention system, the way I understand it, moves and shifts between two states: intentional focusing by engaging the central executive. Or the mind wandering during which we do things like mental time traveling, whether we go forward or backward in time, just to like, you know, lingering thoughts about past events or uh, anticipation of future events, or the third kind, which is the, uh, not third, but it's the kind of mind wandering, mindlessness, everyday mindlessness, which is Mm -hmm. also a sort of mind wandering. Can you tell us a little bit about the science of mind wandering?
3: Your idea about the attention system is partly correct. So, and I'm going to use some technical terms for these, we don't have to, but no, you know, when, when you are just free-floating and you're not really thinking about anything, you know, so I was sitting here for a few minutes before you contacted me today, and I was just, uh, you know, I've got several different projects going on, and I was kind of thinking about them, but thinking about what I'm going to do this weekend, so that mental state, and the part of the nervous system that does that is called the default mode network, and it is when we're not really doing any particular task. I'm not trying to solve a problem. I'm not applying my mental abilities in a focused way. Well, that default mode network is the inactive, you know, we can think of it as inactive, but the brain is always active. And yet, when the call came in and we were going to talk, I now invoke what's called a task positive network, which is actually there are several different elements to that system. And it's a very different system. But the first thing that I have to do is to deactivate that default mode network. And we know there are big differences in that, in that deactivation of the default mode network. Older people are less good at deactivating the default mode network than younger people. Children who have attention difficulties are less good at deactivating the default mode network and going into this task positive network. Almost every day, we have new discoveries understanding (laughs) both the neuroscience and the cognitive science of the attention system. And I think the aspect that I'm most interested in is the control of attention. So things capture our attention. That's, you know, all animals with a nervous system, uh, things capture their attention. You know, whether they're alligators or rattlesnakes or human beings, if a bright light occurs off in the periphery, it's going to capture the attention of that animal or me or you. But one thing that we humans are better at than most animals is the ability to control that. So one of the tasks that I use is something called the anti-saccade task, and it's been used a lot in with the developmentally disadvantaged children and so forth. Imagine the following. This would be better if I had a picture. But imagine you're looking at a fixation point, just a plus sign in the middle of a screen. On each side of that, that plus sign, just oh, several inches away on each side, there's a box. And at some point, one of those boxes will blink. It will flicker. Blink, 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 blink. There are two conditions here in this task. One's called the pro condition. Saccade's and eye movement. And what you're supposed to do there is to simply follow your vision, follow your, what your nervous system, a million and a half years of evolution have prepared your nervous system to do, and that is to look at the thing that's blinking. Now, why would you do that? Why would all animals, why would that be so predisposed to do that across animals? Because blinking suggests movement, and movement is important. survival and so things that blink suggest that there's something out there that could eat you or you could eat it either way critical to survival so all animals do the prosacod condition very very well children old people everybody There are very almost no individual differences in the ability to do the prosacod condition
2: because it's like a natural survival
3: that's correct your nervous system is hardwired to do that without your thinking it's not a voluntary thing When there's something that looks like movement in your periphery, you attend to it. The other condition, the one that I'm most interested in, is called the anti-saccade condition. And there, if, for example, the box on the right blinks, you're you're to immediately look to the box on your left. You're to control that impulse to have this box capture your attention. Now, there we find huge differences developmentally. Younger children are very, this is a difficult task for them. Uh, Attention deficit children have a real difficult time with this. People with a variety of brain damage have difficult, particularly the, the executive systems that you're interested in, have a real difficult time with this. But we find even among young adults, 18 to 35, who don't have any known brain damage and are otherwise normal individuals, show big differences there. So this is one very important marker for what we call executive attention, the ability to control where your attention is allocated. And so when you were talking before about an individual whose all of that information is entering into their consciousness, their attention is captured by all of those events because they've lost the ability to control it. So this ability to control attention is hugely important and plays a really big role in the way I think about this complex system of not just working memory, but it turns out it's hugely important to something we call fluid intelligence, which is the the more the primitive, the biological side of intelligence, if you will. This attention control is really important. And this anti task is one really important indicator of that for looking at individual differences.
2: In my experience, I really understand what you were saying. And in my experience, this really helps in cognitive training, at least what I have found. When you have to perform or engage in a task where the condition tells you not to, you have to employ your impulse control or redirection of action. That's when the rubber meets the road from executive function point of view.
3: That's correct. And impulse control is a big part of this. I mean, there are all kinds of studies now showing that these individual differences in the ability to control your attention, this executive attention ability, are hugely related to a huge variety of uh, pathology, psychopathology. So what you find is that people who are drug addicts or uh, alcoholics have greater difficulty with that than individuals who are not. When we're sleep deprived, I've done work with uh, highly experienced Air Force pilots, and even those people, when they're sleep deprived, their ability to control their executive attention diminished enormously, and it's much more likely to lead to the kind of error that you have in many, many aviation accidents.
2: So this brings me to this interesting thought about in my work with executive function, uh, working memory impairment is quite often a something that goes hand-in-hand hand with executive dysfunction symptoms. And as you know, working memory is one out of three components of executive function, other two being impulse control as well as cognitive flexibility. I see that executive function refers to this deliberate and goal-directed modulation of attention and actions. So in that sense, what do you see the relationship between working memory and executive function exist, and how much intentionality goes into regulating what information we manage in working memory as we are taking complex and difficult decisions?
3: I think that you framed it pretty well there, actually, and that is that intentionality is an important part of this. I think we can get better at controlling what we attend to and what we do prevent ourselves from attending to, and I think that's critical. Some people don't attend very well to what's necessary to perform the task at hand because they don't know that they should. And so I think that there are big differences in the ability to do that, even if everybody is equated on what they know about paying attention. So even if everybody were perfectly skilled at knowing that I should pay attention to what you're talking about, I should not let my attention be captured by the person talking sitting next to me. But once we equate for that, there's still these big individual differences that really reflect differences in the nervous system. We have a really good understanding now, getting better every day, on the biology and the genetics of this attention control aspect. I've seen these differences in uh, four year old children. The differences in that attention capability in four year old children were observed three years later when they were trying to learn to read, and it predicted very well. Reading readiness, how ready somebody was to uh, begin reading. And that was indicated by tasks that we performed two to three years earlier when they were sitting on their mom's lap. So these are important differences in the nervous system. We're getting more and more understanding every day of the, the biology of that and the genetics that underlie them, by the way. What is really important also to understand is that we can be better educated about the need to not let ourselves be captured, not let our our attention be captured by extraneous events. And in dealing with the patients that you deal with, that's got to be one of the hardest things is to teach people, you know, once you decide that you've got a task, you're trying to do your homework, or you are doing your job, or you're listening to your wife or whatever the task at hand is, you have to keep telling yourself, attend to that, don't let yourself be captured. And that's where this idea of maintenance comes in, by the way, because that's a goal, right? Each of those things I just mentioned is a goal. And if I can keep that goal active and sort of keep rehearsing, I need to pay attention, I need to pay attention, then I stand a better chance of not being captured, having my attention captured away.
2: You bring up so many important points. And I think what I find that in my work my work really cannot begin until I work on insight and some introspection because you need working memory to hold on to a strategy that you're trying to implement. Yep. To, while you are dealing with distractions and interference. But if you don't have adequate space in that working memory, which often is in taken away by distracting thoughts, distracting emotions. Absolutely.
3: Distracting. It's that, that, maintenance, <laughs> that maintenance of information I was talking about before. And as new information is coming in and you're attending to it, it competes with that critical goal for activation in this working memory system. And so it is hard to hang on to it. It's hard for all of us, you know, and if I'm particularly stressed, I'm 70 years old and my brain is certainly less good than it was when I was uh, 40. But when I'm in the first two or three days of school and I'm under a lot of stress and I'm getting my classes ready and all of that, I'm much more likely to lose a critical goal, right? Because I've got all of those other things competing for that space, if you will, and working memory. But attention is really key to all of that. Because if something comes along, that, in fact, I need to shift my attention to, if all of a sudden somebody comes in and says, "Uh, there's a fire in the lab, okay? (laughs) I need to shift my attention to that. I need to forget it's the first day of school and I need to forget everything else and I need to. So that new information can be really critical, right? It is like the task, where sometimes I do need to let my nervous system follow what's uh, trying to capture my attention. You know, if you're sitting in a movie theater and there are people talking behind you and you know we tend to good attention capable people tend to block out all of that you know what's being said behind you and around you in a a movie theater but if somebody says the building's on fire you need to now shift your attention to that right yes (laughs) it's it's a complex thing but if you have difficulty blocking that out you're going to be captured by everything
2: absolutely so in closing I have a question about learning so when we learn new information, it changes the brain's neural circuitry, right? So how learning is different from working memory?
3: Working memory is a key part, can be a key part of learning. So when you talk about learning, that's actually learning and memory is one of the courses that I teach at Georgia Tech, an, an undergraduate course. That's sort of the flip side of memory, if you will, because, you know, information that's, that I'm, that's entered my attention, some of it's going to be really important and, and will make. I will keep attending to it. It will maintain control of my attention, like when somebody says the, the building's on fire. Well, information that's in working memory longer and for which there is more attention is learned better, right? And I'm much more likely to retrieve that later than if I don't attend to it. The two systems are very much related.
2: Is it that the simply by... Working memory is that holding place where information is brought into focus, uh, paid attention to, analyzed, processed. And these steps actually is nothing but the steps in learning. So, more attention the information receives, more association and analysis it receives, deeper the meaning we formulate towards that information. And then it's likely to be part of longer, long term memory and transfer from, right?
3: That's absolutely correct. But there's one element to that that whole process that I think that needs to be added here. And that is, you say something to me and I pay attention to it and then we go a little bit longer and now I've forgotten it from my working memory. But you ask me about that again. You ask me, do I remember your producer's name? Well, I haven't thought about that in a little while, but if I can get it back now, that's critical to learning. We now know that that testing of information is actually much better for long-term learning if you tell me his name again, and even if I think about it, so this re-retrieval of information is hugely important to long-term learning.
2: Yeah. And actually, I had a conversation with uh, uh, Professor Mark McDaniel about yep. who studies prospective yep. memory. And Good this friend. is the biggest yep. difference between learning as a form of educational learning, learning. Versus actually perspective memory where you have to remember to remember, if there is no intervening questions that ask you to recall the learning yeah. you have done, then you are likely to forget more, correct? <laughs> That's correct.
3: Mark, he's a good friend of mine. He and his colleague, Gil Einstein, who's at Furman University, both good friends of mine, have done a lot of this kind of memories called perspective memory. It is a, a critical aspect of memory and working memory turns out to be really it is important to that kind of, of memory. and it is. When you see that one of these tragic incidents where somebody has takes their kid to they're going to drop them off at school, but they forget and they leave them in the car, and it usually doesn't end well for the child. Uh, we had a case here in Atlanta not long ago yes. like that. Yeah, yeah,
2: and, I remember.
3: Uh, you know, well, that perspective memory is really critical in many many situations. So what you find, and I'm sure Mark talked about all of this, is that if you look at uh, accidents in medicine, for example where nurses give patients the wrong drugs, or they forget to give a drug to a patient, or doctors do something like leave a sponge after an operation, or they operate on the wrong thing. Almost all of those are associated with an interruption. So exactly, nurse,
2: interference.
3: <laughs> well, that's right. So the nurse is walking. The nurse typically will have, uh, have it written out, the drugs they're going to give to various patients. And if that nurse is interrupted on the way into the room, and somebody asks him or her a question that takes a lot of their attention, attention comes into play here again as well, so now it's quite possible that they're going to forget where they were in that list and give the next patient the wrong drug. Studies show that over and over again. And you see the same thing in aviation accidents, that the vast majority of human-caused failures in maintenance or in uh, flying itself are related to these interruptions, which occur, you know, most of aviation now is automatized above 10,000 feet and below 10,000 feet, at least in commercial aviation. But below 10,000 feet and above 10,000 feet, there are a lot of human decisions that must occur. And if people are interrupted, so they've got a prospective memory of what they need to do. But if they're interrupted, that increases the likelihood of them doing the wrong thing substantially,
2: yes. Yeah, and Erickson has done a lot of work with that, right?
3: Yes, yes, indeed.
2: This has been such a wonderful, wonderful conversation, and I really appreciate your time, Professor Engel, and you have provided our listeners such a breadth of knowledge and the depth of understanding that I think they need to listen to it twice. I highly recommend it. Before I end our interview today, if people want to know more about your research or get a hold of you, What's the best uh, suggestion you have for them?
3: Well, let me give you my email address. It's at, at Georgia Tech, and it's randall.engle, R-A-N-D-A-L-L dot E-N-G-L-E at tech, G-A-T-E-C-H dot E-D-U. But if they Google Randall Engle and Attention and Working Memory Lab, I've got a lab website that has all of my papers available for download and a description of the work that we do.
2: Oh, that's terrific. Thank you so much for coming on the show today and for taking time to talk to me today.
1: You're very welcome. Oh, goodness, Sucheda. what a great conversation with Dr. Engel. Fascinating stuff. I learned an awful lot from that conversation. Any key thoughts that are off top of the mind there?
2: Certainly, Todd. In my work, many focus on defining working memory in its most elementary form as something that allows us to keep thoughts, events, and ideas in mind for a short period of time, as short as even uh, for a few seconds while we work on it. But Dr. Engel explained, however, that working memory is more than that. It is like a system, a system that is activated to use the mental ability in a focused way. The important part of this system is not just temporary memories we hold on to, but also, its interaction with the attention system, and that's a key point he was emphasizing. Being human means being reactive to stuff around us, being attentive to incoming flood of information, and every aspect of human life involves working memory. As Dr. Engels says, working memory is essential much of the time for much of the cognition. Any sort of thinking and interacting with the world requires engaging working memory, but it is the filtering aspect that is the characteristics of working memory.
1: Just to avoid confusion here, I want to be sure I'm clear on this. Can you comment on the difference between memory for learning something new versus what you said is working memory?
0: Yeah,
2: working memory is certainly different from learning. Where we learn a new concept or idea, we transport that understanding from a temporary hold to a permanent storage. For example, neuroscientists describe this way that when learning takes place, one can conceptualize that there is some sort of permanent inscription or engraving in the brain's neural network. But when we are holding on to something while we are working on it in the working memory, there is no engraving. It's like writing letters in the water dew and on a lily pad and it evaporates. And then if there is more dew, you can write more letters. It's more like an etch-a-sketch, you can imagine where we jot down things in the mental sketch pad and erase it once we are done with it. And it's an ongoing process on a continuous loop. Unlike memory, which is with repetition and practice and processing, it becomes cemented, then we don't need to keep it on a continuous loop of learning. We replace the information that we are holding on to in working memory uh, with new things, and we let go the old things that we have finished using, and that information escapes our conscious thought. So even when we are distracted, we are holding on to something, but what we are holding on to is really not that important or relevant. And all that is still happening in working memory. Is that clear?
1: Yeah, no, it's fascinating. And using the example of the etch sketch really helps clarify it. So fascinating stuff. What I also thought was interesting, Sucheda, is that people have been researching this phenomenon of being zoned out. I mean, it was fascinating.
2: Yes, uh, I think we have casually been using this term being zoned out and actually that is a well-known phenomenon. When our brain enters a natural resting state, our mind stops trying to remain attentive and begins to wander from one idea to another, which is what we call mind-wandering state. It's also called a default mode network. This often helps us feel relaxed and refreshed. In contrast, a mind's other state, which needs to be brought into focus when doing intentional work, is called the central executive. It's a mode of paying intentional attention. During this state, the brain focuses intently on the task in hand or, you know, whatever the stimulus in hand and engages in purposeful tasks, allowing us to get things done. In fact, we go back and forth between mind-wandering state and intense focusing state. Forming a balance between these two states becomes imperative because we can best rejuvenate our brains when suppressing the active state of attending. And we can best perform and pay attention when suppressing the non-active state. So a lot of creativity, for example, happens when we let mind loose in this mind-wandering state, but you can actually actualize the creativity by bringing it back into focus by using the central executive. So, Todd, we zone in and we zone out, but at any given moment, there is only room for one idea to be processed in the working memory.
1: Okay. Well, Sucheta, I can tell you one thing I am good at is being zoned out for sure. So, all right. Well, as we wrap, any final thoughts, Sucheta?
2: I don't believe you, Todd, that you are uh, better at zoning out than zoning in. Knowing how proficient and effective you are, you probably are very good at reining in that attention. So, yes, in conclusion, what I would like people to know that working memory is a fragile and weak system and it is often susceptible to failure and it can quickly fall prey to interference. What are we being interfered with? We, any thoughts and information that we are chewing on or a past experience that we are ruminating about or simply revisiting an activity that we just finished? can interfere in our capacity and ability to focus on the anything that's in our hand. And this ex- interference can be external or it can be simply internal. What we must get good at is deactivating this default mode network or this uh, suspended mind activity where the mind is freely floating in whatever direction and rein it back so that we can engage in something Dr. Rendell referred to as task positive network. So giving full attention means really paying attention with intention and this can really help people save effort and some people are good at it and some people are not but i think the awareness that you're not good at it can be a stepping stone for those who are struggling with this aspect of working memory.
1: Indeed great stuff and again it has a great conversation between you and Dr. Randall Engel. I'm looking forward to your second conversation with Dr. Engel next week. So all the time we have for today, thank you for tuning in and we look forward to seeing you next time on Full Prefrontal.
0: Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive functions. To contact our host Sucheta Kamath and learn more about her work on improving executive functions, visit her website at cerebralmatters.com. That's cerebralmatters.com. Tune in next week for the next informative episode of Full Prefrontal.